Depeche is, I'm going to read you his technical qualifications and then just say in a very short term and then just say a few words about him. He is the technically the Lawrence A. Kimpton Distinguished Service Professor in History, South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. He's also a faculty fellow of the Chicago Center for Contemporary Theory and an associate and an associate of the Faculty of Department of the Department of English. He's a founding member of the editorial collective of Subaltern Studies, a co-editor of Critical Inquiry, uh, uh, and a founding editor of Postcolonial Studies. He's also served on the editorial board of the American Historical Review. That uh, number of associations that he has with English, with social theory, with history, is only one, uh, is only a few of the dimensions that belong to this extraordinary man. Um, He's somebody who's been shaped and has helped shape three continents, India, Australia, and the United States. He has business qualifications. He has qualifications in physics. He had qualifications in politics and in history. And he is being... uh, The conversation tonight will be with a historian on the one hand and a political theorist, political philosopher on the other. It it requires this kind of enormous uh, interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary span to get at Depeche. (laughs) David Schlossberg, who will be conversing with him, is Professor of Environmental Politics in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. He's also my proud collaborator at the Sydney Environment Institute. He is internationally known for his work, again, across a number of areas, environmental politics, environmental movements, political theory, and particularly the intersection of those three with environmental justice. His current research includes work on climate justice and on climate change. He's written a handbook on climate change uh, for Rutledge, is it? Yeah. He has a very deep and compassionate nature, but he also is a person with a tremendous grasp of political theory. Um, He's examining the sustainable practices of new environmental movements in groups, uh, particular attention to flows of goods, food, energy, housing, transport, crafting. In other words, he's a grounded academic. Another grounded academic is Professor of International History at the University of Sydney, Professor Glenda Sluger, a colleague of mine and an Australian ARC Council Laureate Fellow, which is the acme of our possible attainments in this country. She is somebody who's worked uh, and established an enormous international reputation on internationalism. Um, And she has many books in that field and in that, in some ways, is how she connects with us at SEI. And we work quite closely with Glenda. Um, Her most recent books include uh, one on the age of nationalism and women, diplomacy and international politics since 1500. 
She's currently completing an ARC study of the Congress of Vienna, which I hope we'll be connected with in some way. And she's editing with Patricia Claven, who's sitting next to her, um, a collection of essays on the history of internationalism. Um, so I'd like, without any further ado, to ask our panellists and Depeche to take the floor. Thanks very much. The beauty of kicking us off tonight uh, goes to me, right. and um, <coughs> I, I, I'm not sure this matters, but I've probably known you longer than some of the people at this table, <laughs> at least. <laughs> and over that time, I've known you in many different guises. Um, and as a historian, really, of, of um, post-colonial studies, of subaltern studies, uh, You've, you're associated with um, many challenging new uh, conceptions, even historical sound bites as they now are, provincialising Europe, being perhaps the most famous, the most recent. And so, you know, I, I've been entranced with the shift that you've made and in your recent work into thinking more broadly about uh, questions of um, the current climate change crisis and bringing to bear on that what I think of as your um, extraordinary capacity to translate between fields of knowledge that many of us uh, have you know, little access to or don't understand that well, you know, bringing to bear that earlier uh, background in physics that you have to um, some of the historical questions that interest you. So I wanted to ask you to, to talk to us a bit about um, the connections between, or how you see the connections between these different projects and um, what, how what you're doing now, what you're writing about, connects to the person you've been, the historian you've been, but, and, and where you want to go with it. Thank you. First of all, thank you, Ian, for again, for the warm introduction, and thank you both for inviting me to take part in this conversation, and thank you all for, for being here. Uh, can you hear me at the back of this? No. You can't. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> it's better now? Yeah. Great. I was just thanking people. <laughs> didn't say anything. Didn't say anything significant. Um, <clears throat> but this is too close. Um, so there is a. I mean, since I'm speaking to an Australian audience, um, there's a connection between my three lives, as it were, uh, in the U.S., uh, Chicago. In the U.S., when I say my life in the U.S., it's kind of it's not the same as my life in Australia, as I think of it, or my life in India, as I think of it, because in the U.S., universities like, are like ships that communicate over the, over the sea. Sort of, you know, some radar communication goes on between ships. You don't actually speak to what's in between, between universities. Whereas in, both in Australia and in India, in different ways, there's a public sphere, like this kind of thing. I mean, we have started to do this sort of this kind of thing at Chicago, but <clears throat> people don't really take it with the, with, the, with the seriousness with which I think it should be taken. Um, and, the, and so moving between these lives and these institutions, my interest in climate change, so if I can say that my interest in um, subaltern history, anti-colonialism, history of European empires and decolonization, if 
That all comes from my Indian background. My interest in climate question uh, is much more tied to my Australian background. So, so autobiographically, what happened was <clears throat> I come to Australia every year, and um, unlike most Australians, I, the first city I came to inhabit and the city I still love, which is the city most Australians love to hate, is Canberra. <laughs> but the reason why I loved it was because I came from Calcutta, and in Calcutta, nature meant the sky <laughs> between sort of, you know, buildings going up, a, a sliver of the sky, or you actually had to make a trip to the river, to the riverside, to see what, a, what nature was. The rest of it was all built up, even today, the slightest of storm in Calcutta can fell trees because it's so built up that the trees can't sink roots deep enough to be stable. So if there's a cyclone in Bangladesh and the tail just sort of, you know, uh, gets to Calcutta, you will have 3,000 trees falling. It's just so built up. So... Nature, and I've written about this in History of Australia. So my discovery of nature, and I thought I was discovering Bengali nature, was around Canberra. The Uriara Crossing, Jinindara Falls, you know, these are places I absolutely fell in love with. And the 2003 fires devastated these spots. I mean, I remember talking to Ian. The grass wasn't back for years. The, the drought was already on, and there was discussions about whether this was natural cycle of the droughts in Australia or whether it was being kind of aggravated by this thing called climate change. But initially, because the fire destroyed all the nature spots I love, I became interested in the history of fires in Australia. And somehow that discussion, reading into the discussion, took me into questions of climate change. And just before the 2007 elections, the IPCC report came out and the water restrictions were so severe in Canberra that there was a kind of, you know, white panic. Uh, scientists, friends in CSIRO were saying, maybe the world will get divided between water importing and water exporting nations. Or, or I heard white Australian friends saying, maybe we will need to abandon this continent and disperse. You know, and this, I had this image of a whole lot of people whose roots are in settler colonial histories, then looking, for, looking to settle somewhere else. There's kind of, some kind of irony in, in all that. We'd be sent back. <laughs> We'd be sent back. <laughs> Go back to where you came from. Uh, and they might not want you back there. But uh, it's really those questions that got me interested in asking, so what is this thing called climate change? It's that kind of... And I saw the process of... Um, <clears throat> what, you know, especially sometimes distinguish between intellectual understanding of something and emotional understanding of something. So sometimes you can intellectually understand a thing called climate change because you're reading about it, you're hearing about it, but it doesn't hit you here. You kind of think, yeah, I mean, sort of 2,000 people have died in Hyderabad in India. Sad, but, you know, my life goes on. <clears throat> Even today when I think about my pension scheme, I don't think of climate change. Uh, there are many areas of life, which is why Bruno Latour actually jokingly said that however much you know about climate change, we all behave like we are climate skeptics, right? But there was a moment, at least in my time in Canberra, where climate change became an emotional understanding. I'm not saying it was based on the right facts, but people 
would lose their you know, front lawn or the backyard and say, this is climate change. And the pressure on Kevin Rudd to say before the elections that Australia will sign the Kyoto Protocol is still for me a wonderful example of how a concatenation of circumstances can lead to a political situation when a, a crisis like climate crisis can become not just something that you understand intellectually, but something that you come to understand emotionally. And the rest of Australian history also tells me how precarious that moment is. It can be reversed, and people can get away, move away from that panic, and people have in Canberra moved away from that, from that panic now. And the first book I read was Tim Flannery's book. Having been very engaged with all this, you know, <clears throat> every year I write, this year I haven't written so much, but every year I write through requests and things about three or four essays in my own language, which is Bengali. But every year I have to write at least for one journal, which was set up by an old teacher of mine. And when he retired, he said to me, Dipesh, so long as I am alive, I'll be running this journal, and you must give me one essay every year. And I thought, you know, Indian lifespan, how long will he be around? You know, maybe, you know, seven years. You know, he's still around, and I still have to write. So the very first time I wrote about climate change, about this realization, because it was, and I'll come to his, the more intellectual question about why studying about climate change gave me a jolt, uh, just coming into that. So my deepest feelings came out in Bengali. And the very first essay I wrote, which in its English version has now traveled a fair amount, the Climate of History 4 thesis, 2009, was originally published in a Bengali version in Calcutta. And it sank without a trace. <laughs> Nobody was interested. My very dearest, my dearest Bengali friend, who sadly is gone, told me, these are Western people's problems. Why are you thinking about these things? And another friend of mine, who is now a historian at Cambridge, Indian friend, said to me, typical of the West, just when it's our turn to consume, <laughs> they come up with this thing. You know, what will they come up with next when we are really economic giants? You know? uh, nobody read it. It sank without a trace. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I should write it up in English. And then I wrote it up in English. So through that, I also realized that, you know, there are two global issues on the desk today. One is globalization. It's been with us at least since 1991. And if you're, if you're a historian, you'll give it a longer history. Um, Arjuna Padurai always complained about historians, that this is a tribe that always says, but what's new about it? <laughs> they always find an earlier instance of it. Um, one is globalization, the other one is global warming. And interestingly, even today when I think of India and its position on climate change, I realize that global warming is much less of a global issue than globalization. I mean, global warming may be a global phenomenon, the scientists are saying, but it's actually much, it's given much less importance than globalization, economic liberalization, the world market, and things of that sort. <clears throat> so that's kind of the, 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 the personal biography of falling into uh, this, this uh, thinking. We, the reason why the climate literature gave me a very big jolt, and this is what I was sharing with UTS friends last night, was this at a very simple level. <clears throat> that it challenged, or at least made me think on a register of irony about the very idea of freedom. 
So, you know, freedom has been a very important idea for many thinkers in the West, including very modern thinkers, and people as opposed in their views on economics uh, as Milton Friedman and Amartya Sen might be, are both interested in freedom. They both say that they're economists because deep down they want to think about freedom. Similarly, historians of anti-colonial variety and anti-colonial heritage are deep down people who are interested in self-determination, interested in political autonomy, interested in history of rights, interested in how to think about ending oppression, right? So, so I was deeply invested in the idea of freedom. And what the crisis made me realize, and this is what I thought there's a very interesting challenge to my own way of thinking, was that while you can think of the idea of freedom in the abstract and still talk about it, most modern concrete instances of freedom entail the consumption of energy. And then, of course, I read people who had actually argued that we owe a lot of our modern freedoms to a fossil fuel-based civilization. Uh, people were actually arguing we owe even our numbers, the very fact that we can sustain human beings on such a large scale and in such large numbers is also something that we owe to available, cheap, and plentiful energy. So people were saying that the key to what we call freedom, what we call rights, the key to the exercise of rights and freedom is the availability of, not just the availability of energy. This is why when we talk about going to renewables, what we have to realize is that it's not simply availability of energy that's an issue. It's availability of cheap and plentiful energy. So it has to be available in plenty, and it has to be cheap. In other words, it has to be affordable. Right? And those two conditions so far have been met by fossil fuels. And, uh, and that may be changing. So in a way, I become interested because of the way... Then I went back to read Amartya Sen's development as freedom and see how important freedom is. And I realized that that is important. You need to, again, think about what is meant by freedom in, the, in today's discussion. Because freedom is still a very important issue and on which people are still fighting. People are still fighting for their rights and all those things. And this other thing that took me by surprise was the, the kind of force, natural force, that our civilization has become when I read geophysicists saying that we have been able, already, we have been able to put off the next ice age by anything between 50,000 to 500,000 years. And, you know, the, only, the, the kind of uh, force relationships that actually normally determine that relationship between ice age and the interglacials are variations in the orbit of the planet. So my geophysicist colleague David Archer was arguing that we are at least as powerful as that kind of a force. And that, I thought, was a completely new development in human history in terms of the scale of it. I mean, humans have, of course, affected their environment, even affected life itself plays a part in the geology of the planet, right? A living, a planet with life has more minerals, it's more mineral rich because oxygen helps to oxidize uh, things and produce more minerals. Um, 
So, you know, those two things kind of jolted my historians, the framework with which I was thinking, which didn't mean that I abandoned those frameworks, but it meant that I had to think about them again. You know. So that's how, that's from where my interest in climate and, issues and came. And wants to ask you now about those, the juxtaposition of these different histories. In fact, because in, in a sense, it's the post-colonial scholar coming, um, you know, head on, meeting head on the problematic of how does one continue an, a history informed by the desire, right. progressive desires, um, and, and deal with this other scale of time right. and, and, and of, of, of change that is at odds with... No, and there's a lot of real tension. So, again, to give a short answer to that question. So what happens is at the Rio conference, right, before Kyoto, you could see that the argument about globalization, which is an argument about inequality, argument about history of capitalism, argument about European empires, that argument meets the scientific argument about global warming. So when the scientists were constructing a problem called planetary climate change or planetary warming, if you read the science of the 70s and 80s when this science was actually coming of age, you will discover that the scientists were not very aware of the story of imperialism, the story of inequality in the world. That's, they were not thinking about it. That was brought to the desk by the activists, by the more um, people who thought in third-worldly terms, people who were working with kind of shorthand expressions of that. So in a way, history of globalization, as we understand it, meets the history of global warming in a phrase that was accepted as the Kyoto Protocol's uh, essential element, which, is, which was called that we now have, all the nations have, common but differentiated responsibility. Differentiated responsibility refers to the history of globalization. We, it's differentiated because only of one-fifth of humanity emits 90% of the greenhouse gases, only a collection of nations, 12 to 14, including India and China, emit most of the greenhouse gases, while the suffering are going to be uh, laid more at the door of the poor, of rich countries and poor nations, et cetera, et cetera. So they bring the inequality argument to bear on the question of responsibility. And in those arguments, I often felt that while the expression differentiated responsibility was clearly understood what it meant, the word common was left empty. You know, common was almost a bargaining word. It was left there to keep the Americans happy. Because the Americans said, no, no, but you know, you can't just get away saying we have to do, there must be something you give us. So they, they used the word common. But there's an idea of, you know, the carbon sinks being the commons, but there's no worked out understanding of what, why the responsibility is common. Everybody's, right? So actually, so what I felt was that um, in some ways the story of glo globalization was something I accept and I knew it to some degree. I know the history of imperialism to some degree. I come out of that. So I kind of felt that I, I understood differentiated responsibility. Common was a much more difficult word for me. I didn't understand it. I thought it was a bargaining word. It was a rhetorically empty word left there. And it became a challenge for me to think, 
can one really think about this word which practically was left empty and fill it with some intellectual content? Is there a commonness to this problem here? Is there a commonness I can acknowledge even after I acknowledge the inequalities, even after I acknowledge the differentiated responsibility? What is that common? You know, which is, it's that thought that took me to the question of species, as you know, and, and other things. And uh, the reason why my first article wasn't acceptable, I think, to Indians, and I actually sent the English version. Before it came out, to, came out in Critical Inquiry, I sent it to a very prestigious Indian academic, semi-academic weekly magazine that comes out of Mumbai. And they, they didn't want to publish it. They returned it to me. Because I realized that the position was much more, the, the position, shared national position, not just bargaining position at forum, was much more third worldist. Which is exactly what the Indian uh, two activists, Sunita Narayan and, uh, anu, uh, and Sunil Agarwal, uh, Anil Agarwal, has put forward in that first booklet called um, Global Warming in an Unequal World, a case of environmental colonialism. And actually, they were the people who first said, you must count emissions on a per capita basis. And it was their argument that was accepted. They were arguing against a booklet that had been published by Gus Pitt, who was the founding director of the World Resources Institute, who was a professor at Yale, in which he had first said this coming crisis is everybody's crisis. And they were saying it's not everybody's crisis. Look at it per capita, and you'll realize it's differentiated. So they were the people who first said it. And it's India's contribution to the debate. And I realized that an interest in what the word common might mean didn't jive with India's both public stance and, and the national stance. You know? And, and uh, so the stance wasn't fake. It wasn't just a bargaining ploy at that point. They genuinely believed in it. Um, and it's, it, it's um, It's really, I mean, a lot of my struggle has been to actually not, not to deny the inequalities, not to deny the history of globalization as we understand it, but to actually try and see what are the ways in which the scientific understanding of global warming and climate change takes us beyond the history of globalization. What is the sense in which 500 years of the history of capitalism, if you think that's, that's what the life of capitalism is, is not enough to understand this crisis? Why do we have to think on a much longer term? Why do we have to think about humanity as a species and what we are doing as a species? Do the poor have a role in our history as a species? Not in our history of globalization, uh, you know, but the, do, do, we, do they partake of the history of the species? Um, and I was trying to argue that they do, that there is, when you actually think of climate change in terms of history of life, that is what human life and human flourishing means for other species and what that in turn means for our flourishing, uh, then the poorer part of the question, because uh, when you say we are 7 billion, you include the poor. When you say we are going to be 11 billion, you include the poor. You don't count them out. They are part of the question. And it's really... So the argument became from my side that, yes, there is the story of capitalism. Yes, there is, and capitalism in an Aristotelian sense probably works as an efficient cause for what has happened. So you can, you can think of reading you know, the carbon figures as symptomatic of what has happened in particularly more recent part of capitalism. 
But, but the crisis actually makes visible deeper, longer histories. And my argument became really about how we need to think these very deep and long-term histories of life and human species at the same time as we think of the history of capitalism and globalization. And really a lot of the debate is that. Last night somebody was uh, accusing me of depoliticizing the issue because he was saying you have to say it's only about capitalism because we know how to fight capitalism. And then once we've fixed capitalism, we've dealt with the problem. And I was trying to say, but no, when you bring these two themes together, the story of globalization and the story of global warming, then what you see is the convergence, as I call it, of the history of capitalism, the geological history of the planet, and the history of life on it. And these are three different histories that have kind of collided. They've run into each other uh, at a particular point so that when, when geologists are trying to define something of the Anthropocene, they're actually trying to find, the, find an event that is simultaneously significant, both in the chronology of human civilization and in geochronology. Right? And so that became my argument, which is, which you're totally right to think that it lies in some tension with the, the thinking that wants to equate the climate problem with a problem called capitalism. So We're going to unpack a lot of these, aren't we? <clears throat> There's lots of unpacking to do and so many questions that came up there. But I'll follow up on, on this right here because I think you know, the, the title of the evening is, is <coughs> Climate and Capital. And I think there is some, you know, out of last night, a little bit of confusion about your approach to capital because you do, as you said, <coughs> the key issue you raise in that critical inquiry piece has to do with this mismatch the first of timescales. The, the, the second one. one. The climate no. and capital piece right, has right. to do um, with this mismatch of timescales, right? And, and let's, yeah, let's unpack and let's talk about it a bit because is there something in particular about capital that really makes <clears> it <throat> incapable of conceiving or addressing the kinds of timescales that the geologists and others in the Anthropocene uh, is asking us to face. All right. Okay. So, you know, so the basic proposition I'm try I was trying to make last night, though I didn't put it in the, these terms, <clears throat> is that, so when you read the science of climate change, by which I mean not just the physics of it. So the physics of it often produces a static relationship which, you know, even somebody like Arrhenius, the Swedish scientists in the 1890s knew, which is that if you put more carbon dioxide out in the atmosphere, the temperature goes up. The geology of it, which is not, which is different, the, you know, the, the paleoclimatologists and their work, you begin to realize that climate change is not a one-off problem. It's a cascade of events. And it's multi-scalar and multi-dimensional. So at one level, it's a wicked problem because it has so many dimensions that you can't address all of those dimensions at once. But at another level, the scales of problems are so big that we humans get outscaled. So, so there, is, there is one aspect of the problem we are in where we are simply outscaled because, I'll come back to your question, because the institutions we have built of governance, of production, of justice, you know, these are calibrated to deal with timescales that relate to human lifespans. 
right? I mean, in India, for instance, it's very hard to get uh, justice. And people would say, goodness, by the time you know, the sentence is delivered, I'll be gone. And that is a criticism, a legitimate criticism, because we think justice system should relate to my time, you know, my lifetime span. So there is, in that sense, I mean, as David Archer says in his book, <clears throat> so very simply, this is a geophysicist, colleague of mine who's written a book for everybody, and I have no special claim on geophysics. My only way my physics background helps, my undergraduate physics background helps, is that I'm not probably as scared as a normal humanities academic uh, to come across a page which seems scientific. You know, kind of, the shutters don't come down. That's, so, I mean, it's kind of just, it helps me in that. So, so I, if you read his book, I mean, he is actually one of the, uh, what I like about his work on climate change is that he doesn't dumb things down, uh, which also makes his books a little more difficult to read for that reason. But he does have a, he used to have a course on YouTube called Climate Change for English Majors. Uh, so, but, what he argues is that there are many aspects of the problem. For instance, he argues that we have already changed the climate of the planet for the next 100,000 years. His argument is that not that we will. He says we already have changed the climate of the planet for the next 100,000 years. Now, 100,000 years is beyond uh, you know, one human lifespan or, or, or three generations or whatever. And he argues that there are aspects to this problem. So one aspect, let me just quickly summarize. So he actually talks, and I won't be very technical, but simply to say that there are two cycles that relate to the discussion of climate change, planetary cycles. One is the glacial, interglacial cycles that we've had for the last two million years or so, right? They come at a certain rhythm. And then there's, he says there's a million-year carbon cycle. So something I was saying reading these people is that whatever excess CO2, we, however we muck up the atmosphere, that will be cleared up by the million-year carbon cycle. Even when we say renewables, I, you know, Brian Lovett, who used to work for BP, said that, you know, fossil fuels, we don't think of as renewable, but they're perfectly renewable if you're prepared to wait around for two, three hundred million years. <laughs> So when we say renewables, we are, the implicit notion is human lives, you know, human scales of time. And David says in this book that, so these two cycles, he says the larger carbon cycle, the million-year carbon cycle, is like the thermostat of the planet. Because the planet goes between what they call a hothouse, you know, when there's no ice on the planet, and a completely ice ball uh, sort of planet. And he says that we don't know enough today about the connection between these two cycles. So if we are mucking, if we are messing around with the glacial-interglacial cycle that we already have, we don't know, he says, as geophysicists, what the implications of that mucking up is for the larger million-year cycle. And because we don't know it, he says, you know, these long processes will just take as long as they take to sort themselves out. They're beyond politics, they're beyond policy. And it was that sense I was saying, here's a problem, if you read the science of it, it outscales us. <coughs> I mean, we are just too puny, however mighty we might think we are, to deal with this problem. So, so what I was saying was that the, 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 cal the, the, the calculations of risk that attend us, that actually service us, the actuarial studies, the, the, the accountancy on which pension schemes rest, 
the risk literature that economists are bringing to bear on, on the climate problem to formulate policy, these are actually all calibrated, designed for institutions that whose time horizon is much shorter. And as Martin Weitzman is the only economist that I've actually read who says this very clearly, he's at Harvard. Uh, he says in one of his papers, he says, you know, the prop that the tools that economists have are the risk literature tools. And, and you can better formulate policy. You, the policy gets more nuanced and more interestingly uh, formulated if the risks are low. If, clearly, if the risks are catastrophic, there's no policy. So you can't make a policy for tipping point of the climate. So the geologists will tell you tipping point is a reality. It's from the geological record of the planet, we know it's happened. Jim Hansen will tell you it can happen over 10,000 years. It can also happen very quickly, over a few hundred years, or maybe some decades even. And you can't model for it. You can't do a risk assessment for it. It's a complete uncertainty that you can't, that you can't convert to risk. So, so in some respects, that, that's why I say that it's a multi-scalar problem. But to deal with it, we have to do what humans, as humans we can do. We have to bring all the resources we have, which are precisely the resources of the institutions, whether capitalistic or otherwise, that are actually meant to deal with problems that occur over a short lifespan. So the fundamental problem I'm trying to make as a philosopher of history is that there is first of all to acknowledge that there are aspects to this problem that outscale us. But the key, the, the key question there in terms of capital right, is whether or not, and you've written as well in, in the recent Tanner lectures, whether capital is incapable of this kind of epical consciousness, right? And certainly cost-benefit analysis and all this, but, but there are some ways of bringing in a concern, at least for a larger period of time, right? The whole argument about the discount rate is about time, is about expanding the notion of time and the devaluing of time within capital. So the question really is whether or not there is this potential within current economic organization and the policy that flows from that of that kind of ethical consciousness, or whether uh, it, you know, it, it's a, uh, a dead mode, a dead method. But you know how the, how the economists debate between, uh, on discounting rate between Nicholas Stern and Ted uh, Nordhaus, for instance, it really goes by your faith in capitalism. So if you believe, for instance, that future generations will be much, much richer than we are, even in a climate-stressed world, you go for one count of discounting rate. If you believe that the future generations will not be as rich, you go for another kind of discounting rate. But there's, I mean, both scenarios might seem equally possible, you know, the future generation. And here, the Stephen Gardner's argument in A Perfect Moral Storm becomes very interesting where he's actually saying that the reason why Hardin's, you know, the crisis of the commons doesn't quite apply to the climate case is because it's, you're talking about bearing responsibility and the damages you might cause to a party, the future generations, who are not present at the debate. And, and that, you know, it sort of raises those, I mean, the economists don't get into this question, right? They go by faith, but philosopher like Stephen Gardner's book, which I think is a wonderful book, is a game theorist philosopher, applies game theory perspectives onto it. It's, uh, he raises, a, that's why he calls it a perfect moral storm, which is a kind of philosopher's expression for this kind of almost, you know, something you can't solve. You know, it raises so many questions. But his discussion was very persuasive for me that, that first of all, climate change is a backloaded problem. 
So the effects of emissions that you suffer today are not because of the carbon we are emitting. Right? It's because of the carbon that has been emitted in the past. So future generations will actually suffer the consequences of what we emit. But when we talk about what we do for the future generations, by definition, they can't be present in that debate. And that's why this whole question raised, actually raises itself just as it comes up with animals and things. You know, should we create spokespersons for future generations in this debate? But going back to uh, the question of capital, what I find interesting is that the lesson I draw from the climate crisis is not whether or not capitalism is capable of either creating the crisis or addressing aspects of it, I, I would answer yes to both of those questions. The realization that at least I derived from it was that all the institutions of governance and production that we have created are embedded in earth processes that support life on the planet. And this, you know, this, uh, last quarter I was teaching a um, course actually uh, in, in Chicago on history of economics and history of geology together. And you realize when you do this together that they are disciplines of exactly the same vintage, end of the 18th century to early 19th century. But they don't speak to each other. And they didn't need to. But this crisis tells me that at some point they will have to. You know, because, uh, because really you become aware of, there's a book called Life as a Geophysical Force, and you become aware of the role that life has played in, in kind of creating the particular nature of this planet. And, and, and you become aware that if, if the planet didn't do its work of, for instance, of eroding the mountains in Australia, the coal seam wouldn't be as close to the surface as, the, as it is now, right? So that affects the pricing of it. But it's, it's only when what Latour calls economic speaking to ecology and what I'm calling economic speaking to geology. You know, it's only when that happens that new kind of disciplines will probably emerge out of this crisis. So, so it's not a question of letting capital, capital off the hook, but I think it's a question of understanding capitalism in a larger planetary context, in the, in the context of the history of the planet. But is it necessary? I mean, if I mean the emphasis that um, you put on time is important and the different scales. But if you make that move, is it necessary to give up agency, a human agency? I mean, no. Where do first you, of all, you first of all, you don't have the agency to give up agency. <laughs> I mean, even if you want, you don't have any. No, I mean, if you might choose to die. E economists do because they. They, um, I, I, and you can read the. There's a critique implicit in no. your presentation of you know, right. the economic imaginary and the, the limited time scale that it operates on. But you move. Since we move between that one and then this, ex, ex, um, you know, extremely deep sort of time scale. And I was just wondering, what's in, is there anything in the middle? Um, and and it, does it require always the centering of the human? to incorporate into that picture no, any look, kind of. There are things agency. in the middle. So if you think of, I mean, this is old. Like, at least from early 19th century on, people have tried to calculate the carrying capacity of the planet. Right? Malthusians have tried to in different ways. The resource industry, there was a debate, historical debates, there have been more than one, about peak coal, which kind of, in a way, prefigure debates about peak oil. Right? So in a way, but 
but you know, those happen, the, the, as you know, the, the time horizon is 100 few centuries that we look at. You know, when will it peak and when will it go? What will happen? When will it, you'd, look at, you'd look at the calculations of a few centuries. Um, so that's, that's what, has, what has become visible in this debate, in, this, in climate change, is that how much deeper processes are at work in, for instance, this knowledge that if we could wait for 200 or 300 million years, oil would be available again. Now, but by know, then you don't need it because you've come up with other. But you, but you, you won't. But you don't know whether you'll be around for that right. that many years. So, it, in some ways, the lesson I learned is, as I was saying, is the relationship between what they call Earth systems processes that we have taken for granted so long, so, uh, until now, in creating these institutions, and that probably we can't any longer take for granted. Right? That's 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 the lesson I learned. So. This, I think, if you ask me as a teacher, what, do you th what, what kind of reforms would I like to see? So in my university and other universities where I speak, I think we, keep, we need to create new kinds of citizenly education, you know, which means that new sort of disciplines have to emerge, new kind of undergraduate teaching has to happen. The, the specialization, the cultural specialization was based on the idea that we will always be able to compartmentalize problems we face and we'll go to biologists for some problems, we'll go to geologists for some other problems. Now we are facing problems that are multidimensional, which need multidisciplinary investigation. And you know, these multidisciplinary investigations cannot actually happen properly <clears throat> unless we, from ground up, we begin to teach our students differently and teach ourselves differently. So I think as, a, as somebody, I always say my place of activism is the university and the classroom. And I think something that we teachers should begin to do, for instance, try and bring economics and geology together and see what happens. Try and bring history and the history of life together. A, a, a biologist once said to me in Canberra, actually, see a CSI biologist, he said, Dipesh, why don't political scientists read Darwin seriously? Not the politics of Darwin. You know, no, no, not, so not sort of, you know, interpretation of Darwin. But actually read, Darwin, read evolution seriously. Doesn't evolution have anything to do? Now, we know that what, what happened in the 19th century, it's very interesting. If you go back to the 18th century, like people like Buffon and others, you know, people who basically tried, were trying to secularize biblical history of the world, creation of humans, right? they actually saw humans as part of natural history. So Buffon, Buffon is in the sixth and the seventh chapter that humans appear because humans are made on the seventh day, right? So even though he expands the scale, there's still seventh, and he sees that natural history. What happens in the 19th century is that the natural history of humans gets separated from the social history of humans and social cultural. And history emerges, the history that we do in, the, in university departments emerges as a discipline in the 19th century on the basis of that separation. So it's by moving away from enlightenment histories of humanity Right, that you create this new discipline called history, and it and the theorist who actually puts this very forward very clearly is of course Collingwood. Uh, in the idea of history, where he clearly says that the fact that human beings have to procreate or urinate or whatever have natural functions is part of biology and natural history. We don't need to deal with this. 
history is really about this internal time consciousness, internal experience we have the world. Because that, it's that motivation, that world of motivation that leads to social life, that leads to the drama of falling in love, hating somebody, loving somebody, all of those things. And that's what history is. And I think that 19th century separation of the natural history of humans, which is the history of the human species, from the cultural, institutional history, is now being challenged. Because if, it, if my proposition is true that you don't understand climate change without dealing with the history of the human species, the, the story of our numbers, and not just numbers, so one of the arguments, because people you haven't read it, I'll tell you, one of the arguments that's come up in the discussion of climate change is this, that you know, there was a very big incidence of climate change when the temperature of the planet went up by almost 8 to 10 degrees Celsius. And we are now talking at a time when the temperature compared, average temperature compared to the pre-industrial revolution has gone up by 0.8 degrees Celsius. Right? We are hoping to manage to remain under 2, which seems unpractical, but 2 is going to be a lot worse than 0.8 degrees. You know, okay, so saying that. So there was a time when the temperature of this planet, from geological records, you can tell, went up by 8 to 10 degrees Celsius. And that happened 55 million years ago. And something that people notice is that all the animals in the planet moved. Now, you know, it happened over 10,000 years, they had time to move. But that's one survival that species have for coping with climate change is to move. Now, the argument today is that species will not be able to move so easily, many of them, because we will stand in the way, because we are everywhere. And we will actually stand in the way of other humans moving. Now, if you ask the history of when did humanity move and when was humanity everywhere, that's the history of the species. Right? So if you, you, you come out of Africa and when do you move everywhere, that, the last place to be occupied was the Pacific. And the, no, that was occupied between the last 10,000 to 4,000 years ago. Right? So, if, so it's not just our numbers, it's also our spread over the planet. Right? That is actually going to be a factor in how this, the, the, the species survival question works out. And that's why I think here it is, here you see the history of what we call humanity and the history of species, which are actually something we, things we read on different registers come together. And that's what I was calling the convergence of histories, the running up into one another of different kinds of histories. So. <clears throat> I, I'm left with a trail of questions that I'm not going to be able to get to because we do want to open it up um, to everyone. Um, I mean, questions about capital's blindness to both time and place, this interdisciplinarity and pedagogy and response uh, to the Anthropocene, uh, it'd be nice to talk about. But I do, I, I'm struck by something you said earlier, and you said it last night uh, at, uh, at UTS as well. And, and so I'm going to push you on some specific policy questions. I'll lean on her in turn. Yeah. So, <laughs> this, 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 <laughs> the the question of the relationship between freedom and energy. Right. So I get uncomfortable when I hear that because that argument has been co-opted by the coal industry. But, yes, right? of course. Yeah. And we hear so much now about energy poverty yeah. from companies that right, right. really you know, could yeah. not care less. Yeah. 
And this idea the, the crocodile tears cheap, about people's poverty. Yeah. yeah. But it's it is a very strong discourse. It's a discourse that's been completely adopted by our current government. Um, and you know, to deal with energy poverty and to provide energy security, we need to you know dig up Australia, burn the coal, uh, or bring it to, to India, burn the coal. And there's no conception. But there is the a conception. They don't say it. But of the contradiction. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no there's no discussion in there about the, the contradiction there. And, and I mean, so what can um, it, you know? What's the response? What what? Could the theoretical response be what? Um, what is the um, the response that actually has an authentic concern yeah. um, for poverty, for the exacerbation of conditions, uh, health conditions, just from burning coal, all along to the impacts uh, of climate change? Okay. So, you know, because freedom, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, this is clearly the discourse that's being used, but it's yeah. being but it's been used to, well. to that use. Yeah. Okay. So let's go get back to the basic proposition, which is that if you if you value human life which I still do, and I'm speaking within that framework of valuing human life, then there's no question that people in, poor people in the world, even poor people in the rich countries, need to get out of poverty. And therefore, there is a need for more energy. There's, you know, they can't get out of poverty without electricity, without you know, um, more food and all of that sort of stuff. So there is need for more energy. Going forward, as I was saying last night, if we have 10 billion people We'll need much more energy than we are consuming today. And that's so there's no question that we need more energy. And and this therefore becomes a question about the urgency of the move over, moving over to renewables, rather than an argument in favor of coal, because the problem with coal, which is the most offensive fuel uh, for climate change, is that you're arguing that you're selling coal to India and places so that Indians get out of poverty. But you're also, you're not arguing, but the fact also is, which everybody accepts, that climate change is going to affect those poor people more than it's going to affect you, right? So you're kind of, you're making them both vulnerable <laughs> and rich at the same time, as it and were. Sick. You know, yeah, and sick and all of those things. So I don't think the cool argument can hold. The argument is really, when do we move over to renewables? And mind you, renewables have to meet that first condition, plentiful and cheap. Otherwise, we can't, otherwise there's no, effectively no energy. And here, I think a very important problem emerges, again, which is a part of the wicked problem uh, aspect of climate change, which is that the last report of the IPCC actually has spelled out quite clearly what they call carbon budgets. So they're basically saying that given the amount of carbon we've actually used up, there's only so much carbon we should use by such and such time if we want to make it, if we want to enhance the probability of staying under two degree average rise of temperature. So they give these calendars that, you know, if you <clears throat> finish that in 20 years, then the chances are such. If you finish that in 30 years, the chances go down and it progressively goes down. The question is not whether or not we will actually move over to renewables. The question is, will we move over to renewables in time to meet this calendar. And my fear is that, is honestly, that we won't. And my fear is that we will actually move into a world of what I call mismatched calendars. So that the calendar for actually moving over to renewables may not be synchronized to the calendar of the carbon budget that the IPCC is 
last report, fifth report is talking about, unfortunately. And that's where there's a question of politics, there's a question of the real amount of power that carbon lobbies, you know, these companies have with governments like Abbott's or with governments like Modi's in India. Because the argument is also coming from India. It's not just from here. The Indian Environment Minister who was in New York a few months ago made a statement which was reported in the New York Times. He said, don't even expect us to do anything. And just this morning I found out that coal is, is almost 70% of the energy mix in India today. And they don't expect it to go down below 60 in foreseeable future. So which probably means that given that you can't argue against poverty and you can't argue against giving people more capability and stuff, we will probably miss the calendars, the timetable that the IPCC is uh, formulating, which I call you know, the world of mismatched calendars. Uh, so we'll probably get into a climate-stressed world even as we're trying to fight these injustices. So I don't think the coal companies, uh, it lies in their mouth, but you know. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to, can I come back to Depeche Chakrabarti, the historian, because sometimes when I, when I read you and, and listening to you tonight, I do feel that you're speaking to me as an historian and perhaps other historians in the room will think, feel that too because you know, there is a strong message there about timescales and about where we position humans in our histories. And so I keep thinking that I have to come up with some new projects that meet the requirements of this, you know, the, the, the disrupted sort of world that you've opened up to me of thinking about time in the past and the future. And I thought, you know what, maybe I won't do the hard work. Maybe I'll ask Depeche what he thinks he should do next if he takes on board, you well, know, I mean, the interdisciplinary... You know, long, long, before I've, long before I have done that, I mean, you know, there are people who are... I have criticisms of them, but there are people who are trying to do deep history, big history. And, and John Brooks' book uh, on climate change in human history is a very interesting and important book, and I think he's done a lot of research... Uh, and, and, and read a lot of that stuff that humanities people don't want to read uh, in order to write that book. So I think there are other historians who are doing it. I see myself, I see myself as somebody who does both history and who is also a philosopher of history. And, and I always ask myself the question that ultimately, if the climate crisis gets worse and we somehow survive the crisis and our civilization survives, just as we told our children in schools once triumphant stories, about human conquest of nature. You know, I was brought up on those stories. And you just have to go back and read what, what even sort of Indians were writing about the tube in London as it was being built. You know, the marvels of science, the wonders of science. There's a whole history of us doing that. And that actually percolated down to school texts. And that's how we told the story of progress, the story of human civilization. And as a friend of mine said, even the story of human evolution where kind of, you know, it, it begins with an ape and as it becomes erect, it looks white. <laughs> you know, it, it never looked African. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but I always think, what stories will we tell, will future humans tell their children about humanity? And, and that's where these things come. And I hope that one day they'll tell a story of us being both civilized but also a species. Looking for peace, perhaps, perhaps as humanity but being somehow uncontrollably destructive as a species, like many species are. I mean, something that often I find, you know, in people who write about, uh, I was reading a very interesting essay by David today on Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum's position 
on environmental justice. And, and I had the feeling that Nussbaum particularly was often, they often assume that the natural world is somehow harmonious. And you know, something we don't even, like if when we talk, of, think, talk about doing justice to other animals, other creatures, you know, doing justice to somebody with, among human beings, if I'd have to do justice to you, I have to do justice to your aspirations. Your aspirations, I should think of as part of your interests, right? I can't think about your interests without your future. Now it's clear that if humans were extinct, that would be wonderful for some other species. It was wonderful for mammals that the dinosaurs got extinct. They came to dominant, they were rodents from which we came, right? If we got extinct, some other animal will dominate the planet. Is it possible for us to do justice to that aspiration? You know, what, what sometimes these people don't have, they don't have enough of nature sitting in there <laughs> and telling them that life is about the will to power. And species history is all about empirical accidents and will to power. And as, as you can be very pacifist as a human being, as a species, the species is not pacifist. They collaborate, they compete. You know, they eat up each other's food. I mean, I often imagine sort of, you know, the squirrels competing with me for peanuts. <laughs> particularly for raw peanuts. Um, that's what species are. That's what history of life is. And sometimes I think people who think of environmental justice and extending this, all this, they kind of think of a harmonious situation. And they don't think that actually being just should include being just, theoretically, to the species that might want to replace me. Right. <laughs> you know, so I think it's really coming to grips <clears throat> about the history of life, not with a sense of, you know, being do-gooders, Life is not about, I mean, the history of life, history of evolution is not about, I mean, sure, they ask this question, why do animals cooperate? Some animals don't, but some, when, even when species co-evolve, they can still compete, or members can still compete. And it's really, I mean, we have to go to that history with open eyes, and that's why not confuse that history with the history of humanity. And often in many of the eco-modernist discussion, what I feel is that humans are wanting to be a rational species which for me is a contradiction in terms. Well, let's test that. I, mean, I think it's good time to open it up to the audience. So perhaps we'll take some questions. And uh, are you going to... David, why don't you do it? Okay. Oh, come on. I've got a ton left, but... Maybe let the, let the room settle down a bit, and then some people have to go. So. Up here? Do we have a microphone for yeah. questions? Yeah. Thank you. Um, hi, I too am quite fascinated by universities seem to still operate in silos and don't, when the evidence is so clear that innovation occurs across boundaries and new knowledge needs quite dis distinct disciplines to come together. I mean, is it that it's just so medieval and Byzantine in culture or is it power being institutionalized, because it, it my, truly puzzles me. Truly, my um, understanding of that problem, and here I'm coming from an American context, but, you know, but also I, I, I also think it's true of the major universities in Australia. You know, first of all, there's a problem in speaking to scientists. I say this is a humanities person. We, are, we have education in which sciences are all, always already valid, right? They're already a valid enterprise 
you might have a Latourian critique of it or a Fairbend type of critique of it. But we grew up learning that sciences are powerful things and they are rational things. They are difficult to do. Very smart people do them, etc., etc. It's very hard to uh, convince many scientists of the value of the humanities. Not policy. They, are, they accept policy. They'll even accept some philosophical reflections, ethical reflections, like Peter Singer's type of work. But when it comes to poetry, when it comes to speculative philosophy, it's very hard. I mean, that conversation is hard to start. And the reason why I say this is because my point in saying is that to say that the conversation needs time. We need to understand each other's cultures, and they, they need to understand what is the value of what we do. And therefore, if you bring these faculties together to start a course, my experience from Chicago and other places is that most people in a research university don't want to give that time. They would rather give the time to a publication, to a grant application, and all of those things. So in the American context, I think the movement is happening more in the undergraduate institutions, in the teaching institutions, because there it's more possible to experiment with teaching. And which is good for them, and I think they might actually turn out to be the leaders and the innovators in this case, because in the research universities, people are so kind of attached to the next, you know, next publication. It's very hard to do that. That's my experience. Sorry, you had a follow-up. Well, I just think it's follow a simple solution from a public policy perspective, and that you change the drivers, because I think it's time that um, yeah. determined that the hierarchy actually. No, actually, oh, I, I totally, I mean, in a public-funded system, I mean, in America, I'm talking about a private research university. In a public-funded system, if ARC said huge grants for teaching these courses, and you would have a number of applicants, there's no question, but, but then they have to see the point of doing that. You know? Well, we'll see. We just put in a very large grant about exactly this sort of question about, about interdisciplinarity, about the, the engagement across the But yours is a research center. It's not, it, will it have pedagogical aspects? Oh, there is a pedagogical part to this, and right. there, there has to be, right? I mean, there's got to be a link between that expansion of that interdisciplinary uh, exchange and the way that that uh, affects the teacher. And actually, it's the students that are pushing us. The students couldn't care less about the disciplines. The students are interested in the problems. So they want to talk about food. You can't talk about food without talking about the humanities, the sciences, the social sciences, all at the same time. And so the, we're being pushed from that direction. Yeah. And the cultural, you know, what happens, like, scientists, I mean, to give you an example of what scientists are blind to. So, again, David Archer, whose book I admire, he begins the book by saying, because he's writing for a general readership, so he's trying to convince people of the urgency of the problem. And the way he puts it, he says, Suppose, you know, the ancient Greeks, ancient meaning not so ancient Greeks, you know, people we call ancient Greeks. Suppose the Greeks had discovered cheap oil and had lived it up. And 3,000 years afterwards, we were suffering the consequences. Would we still think of the Greeks as the acme of Western civilization? Now, kind of think, here's the universal argument about climate change. And then the cultural argument becomes so Eurocentric, right? And, and he doesn't see that that argument will need to be rephrased for it to become persuasive in, in other cultures and other audiences. And, and, but, you know, it's only by coming together, giving, it, giving each other time that... So even before they start to teach together, 
they'll have to learn together of, about each other's modes of thinking, the payoffs and the costs of different modes of thinking, and appreciate that. And, I, and my own sense is, speaking to scientists, there are some wonderful scientists who do this. I mean, uh, there are geologists who write beautiful English. Um, and, uh, and now, people, particularly scientists, climate scientists who are now active, have become more sensitive to a question of communication. But still, there's a problem. Uh, the two cultures problems still exist in some ways. Other questions? Ian. Ian. I was wondering, Depeche, about the problem, about whether there is an, uh, an apprehension in... Okay, thanks. Whether there's an apprehension in uh, the United States among scientists that they have hit a massive problem in communicating climate change, in communicating the science is solid, the science is overwhelming if you read it, but they, uh, the failure to persuade. And whether that is something that is inclining them to start to respect. There are, I mean, the, how you communicate the message has become a very important question. So yes. just, I was mentioning a book that just come out and it's available in Australia called Endgame Question Mark by two climate scientists. One is uh, Tony Barnowski from Berkeley and his wife who is a biologist at Stanford. And they've been working on climate question for a long time. They're also part of the subcommittee on Anthropocene and Barnowski is and he's written about this. Now, they say if we have to go forward and do something about climate change, they, there are two principles that they uphold and they call them embrace, that is actually acknowledge the problem in its different dimensions and communicate. Uh, those are the two principles. So clearly scientists have become aware of communication. And now even funding agencies, so there's a funding agency in America uh, which, was, which is funding a project I know about communicating the climate crisis message through television to ordinary American television viewers. So the first thing they had to dis work out is what is the most popular program on television? And they worked out that the weather <laughs> was something that everybody watched. So they now, the project is about training announcers to see if they can couch weather in a language that sort of subliminally spreads the message of climate change. But the other option, for instance, Jim Hansen, who I think is a terrific communicator in many ways, has written, you know, who wrote Storms for My Grandchildren. On the other hand, he is obviously frustrated with the ability to communicate. So he is now emphasizing legal action right, on local issues. He's saying this is what something we can do under the radar, let's do that. But the problem is, of course, in his understanding, and somebody has written about this, there's, an, there's enough of a political naivety and a trust in American democracy where he thinks that if he can speak over the heads of lobbying interests, you know, lobby groups, straight to the president or straight to the Congress, that the Congress would see the rationality of what he's saying and act on it. Or that the public would see the rationality of it and act on it. So there is a kind of a naive assumption that the political message has to be rational in order to be persuasive. There's, it, I was just thinking, though, just to, to push you a little bit further. I mean, one of the things that has been uh, very noticeable to us in the, in the uh, 
Sydney Environment Institute is the in enormous power that is coming from environmental artists yeah. and, uh, and installation people. And the capacity there is the capacity to take a complex scientific problem yeah. and present it in some way that does communicate its complexity. Yeah. The question is, Ian, I, I think, I mean, like that, that photo, I don't know who took it. Remember of a polar bear on a little sure. piece of ice floating, right? It was such a telling photograph of, of the breakup of the ice. The problem is, of course, at that moment, you have an emotional understanding. Do you sustain that? And that's why I go back to 2007 and Kevin Rudd's election. What I saw in that political process was an emotional understanding that was somehow sustained by circumstances of the severe, all kinds of things were happening. So my sense is that we should all try to communicate and embrace, as, as the two scientists say, but communication is not simply a willful act. It's not an act of will. You know, Hobbes has this wonderful sentence where he says, I can bring my reason to you, but you have to bring your attention. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so Hobbes' position always is, you know, that what motivates me to listen is political. It's only after I've been motivated to listen to something rational that I might listen to it, right? And that's why the first question is this motivation. And motivation is, you can't will it into being. You know, the crisis may have to become deeper. Uh, maybe the rich have to suffer. See, something that doesn't actually, is under, it's not understood in the discussion. See, when I wrote the first essay, and I wrote it out of my Australian experience, so I had a sentence saying, Unlike in the crisis of capitalism, here is a crisis in which there are no lifeboats, even for the rich. And people have taken me to the cleaners for saying this, you know, Europeans and others. What do you mean, you know, the rich who can do this, blah, 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 blah. And I actually had a saying, in brackets, I said, look at the bushfires in Australia. And of course, Zizek makes fun of it, saying, yeah, I grant you that you had class class-friendly, sort of, you know, kind of <laughs> class-conscious fires in, in Australia and California. Fine, you know. So they make fun of it. But people don't realize that Australia is one of those rich and developed countries, which is actually the front line of the climate crisis. And Europeans and Americans are not so exposed. And therefore, the Australian experience of being a developed nation and actually facing the crisis much more severely than these places, because of geological history and the positioning, of the, all of those things, it's, it's very important to realize that. And actually, that's why I think the communication has to be context-based. That's why it's not enough for David Archer to say, with the Greeks, I mean, the Greek example works for some people, and it doesn't for other people. And the, and the communication, is, communication cannot simply be willed into being. Others have, others have to have reason to listen. But at the same time, but the attempt to communicate does not have to cease simply because others are not listening, right? But, but, but I, my feeling is that it has, this crisis will have to get deeper and hurt us more directly. I'll give you an example from India. You don't have to go as far as Australia for looking for rich countries. Last summer, we had a heat wave. 2,000 people got killed in Hyderabad in one city, right? And I got an email from a friend saying, you know, it's very sad 2,000 people got killed. Hyderabad had terrible... Calcutta was hot too, but Hyderabad had a terrible heat wave. But you know... Mangoes, really good mangoes were plentiful and cheap. <laughs> now, you know, that's human beings for you, right? The, the, you know, and so Hyderabad was not part of emotional understanding. Mangoes were. <laughs> so 
so as I was saying, you can't just simply will the communication into being. But you have to communicate. Okay, I want to I challenge um, a claim you made a little while ago about human species and humanity, the difference between the human species and humanity. Mm -hmm. So I'll break down the claim I think you're making, and I'm going to try and uh, show you why I think you're profoundly mistaken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think it's not arguable. Uh, it is the case that humanity and the human species are not identical. Are not identical. No, they're okay, not. Okay, so you grant so, me that. So that I grant. I okay. think you're starting from a correct assumption there, okay, <laughs> and making an invalid inference after. Right, right. right. So the correct, is, the correct beginning is that we're not identical. Where I think you're mistaken is that you bifurcate these two. So the human species is what you've described as incredibly destructive. Whereas I think it is humanity that is incredibly destructive, right? You, you, it, the destructiveness doesn't come, so this is still build up. The destructiveness doesn't come out of the fact of our species nature. The destructiveness comes out of the kinds of values, the kinds of visions of what counts as the right way to live on this planet is lived out and practiced over long periods of time. So capitalism is destructive, the most destructive, and we can do this very easily. It's not like a, you know, so just, so, but that's not really what I want to say. What I really want to say is that though we are not identical with our species nature, what we are as humanity has a feedback relation oh, yeah, with no what question. we are as a species. And it, the way you presented it is they're completely no, no, bifurcated. No, no, okay, and that, okay. I think, leads to all kinds of difficulties, some of which arise around the agency question, because the way you tell your story, right, when we do these multiscalar temporalities, the way you tell your story from the perspective of this higher and ever higher and ever longer time, it's arbitrary what we did as humanity. It's arbitrary what took place over these last 300 years. Whereas from this perspective, it's not arbitrary at all because it does then uh, have consequences long-term into the future. Okay, what kind of species we, we become through can the I, kind of humanity we are. Okay, and, can I, so those are linked. And I think if you de-link them... Yeah. We have issues. I think, I think, I mean, respectfully, I think you, you have probably made a wrong, derived a wrong conclusion from right assumptions. You know, so we, we share the assumptions. You know, we'll keep doing it. But can I, can I quickly respond to it? No, I think it's a very stimulating question. Um, and so, as you know, and people who try to bring species history and the history of us as humanity together, I'm not necessarily theorists of capitalism. They don't do that. But someone like, say, Edward Wilson was trying to do that, right? So, and he has a very interesting argument, which I don't think is proven, because often they can't prove their proposition, but I think it's quite a stimulating argument. It's a good one to think with. So his argument is, 
in the book um, on insects, I think, on social life of insects or something like that. Not, not the ant book, but a collection of essays. Uh, so he groups together all the creatures that cooperate and call them eusocial creatures. And one of the things he says that is characteristic of creatures that cooperate is what he called the instinct to defend the nest against members of the same species. So his argument is that our sociality, our training in being social, is predicated on our being in conflict with one another. And in, and in a sense... It's very Kantian, isn't it? Well, he's, but he's taking this back to other creatures as well, not just mm. humans. He's saying this is a characteristic of eusocial creatures. It's an interesting argument. You know, some of my... Uh, some, some friends, of course, you know, back off from this kind of thinking... But I find it a very interesting argument to think about whether the capacity to become social itself is actually predicated on this, this other capacity of fighting and aggression. But at the same time, it is also true that the capacity to become social, which is part of our evolved capacity, the brain plays a role in it, has allowed us to create larger and larger mythical entities, but give them shape and form like the United Nations like a nation, like a committee of nations, and all of those things. And, and therefore, it's also true that in human history, we have actually shown the capacity to cooperate on larger and larger scales, which is something that is hopeful. At the, and this history of humanity, of being human, of course cannot work against our evolved capacity. So for instance, we have opposable thumbs. And we have binocular vision. So even if you build a fighter plane, you can't work against that principle. So even in creating a glass or a cup, it's a stupid. Or breaking one. <laughs> or in breaking one. <laughs> gravity, is, gravity is at work. Well, but there's let's not, let's not, right. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, I was, just, I was just trying to give a demonstration of my opposable thumb. Yes. But obviously, <laughs> you know. But what I'm saying is, so these histories come together. I mean, for me, it's very interesting, for instance, his, as a historian, social histories of childbirth. Now, when I was in Melbourne, when I was teaching in Melbourne, there was a very wonderful um, historian who did that, uh, who wrote a history of women's hospital. Jill Matthews? Hmm? Jill Matthews? Hmm? No, not Jill Matthews, but anyway. Janet McCullman. Janet McCullman, oh. yeah, the history of women's hospital. And you know, it's interesting, like if you read that book, there is no discussion of the shape of the female pelvis, which has actually evolved and in every childbirth poses certain problems. Right? So, so that's because social history was not connected to natural history of humans. Right? I mean, today with this awareness, we'll probably write that history somewhat differently. So obviously these histories are connected. And I often think of histories of our evolved capacities that we share that phenomenologists, for instance, take for granted. The capacity to be bored, which Heidegger thinks is universal, right? Take for granted. And I think of that history as our long present. It, it's like a bedrock of long present over which we write histories of different groups and different tribes and whatever, different, uh, different identities. They, so the, in many ways they come together. I, I, I completely grant you that point. But going back to the assumption on which we agreed that Analytically, these are different categories. 
we get at them through different research methods. There are categories of different vintage. So some people actually argue that the category humanity, this I'm referring to an article by Michael Gard and Charles Bright on globalization. I mean, you wouldn't have, no, you wouldn't have any reason to have read this article. And they're, as historians, arguing that humanity is a 20th century, late 20th century category only invented to actually rationalize globalization. You know, or it takes its... Yeah. Whereas species is a much, much, much older category, right? Both as a word, it's much older, but also... So these are, that's why, so what I'm saying was that a lot of history of life takes place uh, through empirical kind of development and logic. Whereas it is within human capacity to order the information relating to human institutions in such a way as to think or conclude that there's a logic to it. Right? It would not have been possible for Darwin to organize the history of life in such a way that he could have said there's one single logic running through it, but it is possible for us to organize information about capitalism in such a way that many Marxists will convince themselves that there's something called the guiding logic of capital, which is running through it. Now, what I'm not sure about is whether it's a human evolved capacity to do put that orderliness into historical information or whether it actually exists out there in the world. I think one day we might actually be able to write even short-term human histories as histories of randomness. We don't know. There's well, a I think question. we're actually out of time. Should we take this one question? Because one, last, there has been, one last one. You've been waiting for a while, so... Um, thank you. Yes, I, I just wanted to invite you to reflect a little bit on the, uh, the nature of the public discourse about uh, this multi-scale, uh, multi-dimensional crisis that we face. Because, because the terms of the, of the public discourse have been largely set by uh, scientists right. for very good reasons, um, the... The public debate tends to be in terms of, well, what is the policy response? And it seems to me that we're heading into a dead end by doing that because it is not fundamentally a a policy issue as you've set out. It's fundamentally an institutional issue. As as, uh, I think Stephen Hartman, the Swedish scholar, scholar said... We're not, fa- we're not facing an ecological crisis, though it has profound ecological consequences. We are facing a cultural crisis. Right. Now, it seems to me it's very difficult, and I'm, I'm interested in your views about this, to shift that public discourse out of what is ultimately a, a rather short-term and probably futile discussion about policy options that gives that takes our cultural settings and our institutional settings as givens when they're the very problem that we need to be addressing. Have you got any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, my, I, mean I, I share some of your thoughts. The only thing I would, I would probably, and I don't think you, you, you actually meant this, but I mean, something one could read into your question was, is a kind of dismissal of policy options. And I, and I don't think you meant to dismiss them, and I wouldn't dismiss them either, but I think, I think there are, because it's a multi-scalar, multi-dimensional problem, there are many problems you can actually address. Uh, you could, there are problems you can address at the level of your neighborhood, there are problems you can address at the level of your community, there are, there are many aspects of, so that's why I, was, I often say, you know, it produces approachable problems, 
and it also produces certain predicaments uh, for human beings, and it's both. Uh, on the other hand, there are those long-term shifts that need to take place in our understanding of ourselves, our institutions, and, and I think what happened, partly the, my friends that I've, I've been arguing against and with, and because they're friends with, I come from the same stock myself, the, partly the problem in the left has been to think that CO2 or greenhouse gas is only the efficient cause, and the final cause is capitalism. And, and I've been trying to say, actually, there is no one final cause of this crisis. Many things have led to it, and there have been feedback loops. So if my argument that fossil fuels, our extraction and use of fossil fuels, into things like fertilizers, you know, irrigation pumps, antibiotics, if these things have actually helped us to produce more bodies and sustain them, then that itself works as a feedback loop, wanting more fossil fuel, <laughs> the argument for coal, right? Wanting more bodies. And therefore, there's no final cause. It it's really is a series of complex set of causality with feedback loops built into it. And that's, it, it was in that sense that I've been resisting the reading that, I often come, that often comes from the left that the greenhouse gases, the scientists worked it out, but we always knew all along what the problem was, even if we didn't have the science, because that's just the efficient cause, and the final cause is capitalism. And then, of course, you know, you don't know whether capitalism is 500 years old. When do you say there's a logic of capital? 250 years ago? Or actually, when you look at it, 50 years ago? I mean, the, the great acceleration thesis is actually talking about what happened after the war. So actually, when you come to studying capitalism, there's no one opinion about when does capitalism become the final cause of, of this. But that's what I've been trying to raise. But on the other hand, I think I, I don't, I'm not a policy head, and I'm not very good at thinking policy. But I, I admire people who can actually formulate policy. And the policies are not simply um, to do with, I mean, for instance, disaster policy is very important. I mean, in India should have cooling centers in the cities. India should have warming centers in the cities for poor people. I mean, these kind, somebody has to say, look, this is what people do under these circumstances. I think we've moved from mitigation to adaptation. And that's why it's very important to communicate the message at different levels. And, and these practical ideas which can save lives at any moment are more important than ideas which can create a philosophical view. And in that sense, I, I think of my work as less important than what, what actually practical people can suggest. Well, I think we need to close. And I, I think I'll just close by saying, Deepesh, you've always pushed us and offered so many things for us to think about, so many ways to respond, so many reframings uh, of the problems. And there's a deep appreciation from us uh, here at the Sydney Environment Institute uh, and at the university. So we want to thank you for your time. Thank, thank you for you. coming, and thanks to everyone else for coming. Thank you. Thank you.